All right, everybody, let's get started. Um, I'm kind of excited for today's lecture. This is, you know, my first chance to talk about Vavilov in this sort of a context, and obviously I've probably said the word Vavilov every class at least once. Um, I sort of got to the exciting facts a while ago. One of the things about the judgment that's craziest to me is just the way it's structured. When you read, you notice that it's just almost like the inverse of a normal uh, judgment from any court you read, where they get to the facts on like page 100. <laughs> it's, um, it's really remarkable. Like the, I'll talk a bit more about this whole process and, and sort of some of the concerns that might arise out of the process that was followed. But just from the perspective of this guy, like what a life, can you imagine? You go from having this normal childhood to at age 16, it's like, yeah, your parents are spies. Then you go through this whole citizenship debacle. Meanwhile, they're making a hit TV show about your life. <laughs> like the Americans is literally based on this guy's story, in, roughly. And then, you have this pretty dumb decision from an administrative decision maker saying like you're not a citizen because your parents were secret spies even though you've grown up here and whatever it is you go to the federal court somehow they don't interfere federal court of appeal sets it right everything seems okay but then for some reason there's another appeal to the supreme court of canada and then the Supreme Court of Canada says, hold on, we are going to invite like 100 lawyers to come talk about something that's got nothing to do with you and making this big thing. And now, you know, at least in some circles, your name is going to be sort of commonly said. So it's just a, it's sort of a remarkable, almost hijacking of this person's very legitimate and important dispute into something that's so removed from him that he's such an afterthought in the judgment. It's really is unlike any other case I've ever read. Um, but is it important for admin law? I mean, my goodness, yes. I noted up the case uh, preparing for today's lecture two days ago, I guess it was. And it's been cited 3,500 times. And it's been not even out for two years. Um, I like plugged it into the time and date calculator, figured how many days it's been since it was released, how many work days, and it's cited like eight times a day since it's come out. Um, so that is remarkable. Like that, that's as uh, widely cited a case as you're ever going to come across. Um, the case was dis was uh, decided at the same time as two other cases that we'll talk about next class, the, uh, the Bell Canada, uh, like the NFL case about the Super Bowl, Super Bowl ads, and uh, Canada Post Workers' Compensation case. All three, frankly, have kind of intriguing facts, but the court decided to put the analysis into Vavilov, and I, I'll have some theories as to why I'll maybe talk about next class. Um, but regardless, this is clearly the leading case. The Bell Canada case that was came out at the same time has been cited 200 times as opposed to the, you know, three and a half thousand for Vavilov. And so clearly, empirically, it's important. 
but why is it so important is what I want to tackle today. Um, the answer is simple, really. It sets out the analytical framework for deciding the standard of review. And I would argue, most importantly, it provides a lot of guidance on how to apply that reasonableness standard of review. Um, but to unpack those two things will take some time. Um, I don't anticipate we'll get through the entirety of the case today, and I'm not going to try to force it through. Um, the fact is we also have a whole slew of interesting um, sort of videos and multimedia possibilities with this case. And so I want to take our time, um, look at some of the submissions that were made to the Supreme Court. Uh, I want to do that both because I think it, it's illuminating and interesting, and I also think it's, um, it's a good exercise in law school to, to look at and evaluate um, advocacy at the high level, see what is, what's effective and what's not effective. So I also want to take this opportunity to have a bit of a sort of advocacy discussion around some of the submissions that we'll have a look at. Uh, some very effective, some very you know, ineffective, I, I think. Um, we'll also check in with uh, a symposium that Allard held uh, via Zoom, obviously, last year to celebrate the first birthday of this case. Um, and it's really like the nerdery around this is remarkable. And actually, I was thinking this morning as I was sitting, like shivering at Great Dane Coffee, it was such a pleasant routine I had for the first two weeks of this course to like get a coffee, sit out there, reread my notes, and now it's just miserable. <laughs> these like off, these heaters that are not on just sit there taunting you. So, um, but I was thinking, why do people get so worked up? Why is there a birthday party for a case. Um, and I guess people do like birthday parties. It's my dog's second birthday today, and the kids got her to bed like it was Christmas. Like, happy birthday, Maple. So that's just maybe a human instinct. But, um, but why is admin law this area of law that attracts this sort of nerdery and, and nerdery reverence? And then these hard you know, fights that I've, I've talked about with these philosophical disagreements. And I think in part, I mean, you could find philosophical disagreements in the law of tort or the law of contract, but they're so settled and old, it doesn't feel like you're engaging in the project of making them for the first time. Whereas in admin law, you know, you are. Like, could you imagine the Supreme Court of Canada saying, hey, we're rethinking contract law, so let's, let's throw the whole thing, you know, in the mix for a hearing. Uh, they'd never do that, right? But admin law you know, is an area that they will. And so that's one of the reasons it's such a fun area to study and practice in is because it's being developed before your eyes. Um, the principles that kind of tie the whole thing together are almost being discovered and uh, are really grappled with in real time. Um, and it's gone from a very disparate, sort of cobbled together bunch of authorities to something that's starting to make a lot more theoretical sense. Um, and the other area of law that I would say is like that is Aboriginal law, in that you know it's another newer area um, for for study that, that has a similar amount of sort of excitement around it. So you know, I would those are the two areas I like to practice in, and I do think they're they're great areas to look uh, look both into um, because of their interest, 
and also they're just growing areas where there's so much need for, for good lawyers. So with that little sort of intro, um, I'm just going to get right into Vavilov. Um, and to take a cue from the Supreme Court of Canada, I'm going to get to the application of these principles, uh, maybe not even today, to the facts of this case. We might push that off till, till Friday. Um, I'm going to get right into this framework that's, that's set out by the court. And the, what's ca called in the case the, uh, the pole star, uh, the, the overarching guiding light of Vavilov, if you want to take away sort of one underlying principle that Vavilov would really hammer, it's respect for legislative intent. And the courts are, the court, even the minority, um, agrees with that fundamental proposition that what the court needs to do is put forward an administrative law framework that respects legislative intent while accomplishing the court's function of ensuring the executive stays within the scope of its jurisdiction. And of course, the, those two concepts go hand in hand because the principle is the legislature intended for the executive to stay within the scope of its jurisdiction. So respect for legislative intent is the touchstone that you can almost come back to for any point within the Babylon analysis. Um, and you know, a trick that I do when I argue in court is I try to think of like, what's my one main point? What's my one sort of catchphrase or, or thing that I can um, tie any part of my submission into? And I write it right at the top of my page every time. Because then no matter how tough a question I get, I can say, well, you know, milady, that's an excellent question. And what it really gets back to is my main point. And then I can go anywhere I want to in the rest of my analysis. And I would have written, you know, respect for legislative intent at the top of my, uh, my paper if I was making the submissions in this case. So um, we need to understand what the legislature intended and of course, that's where you know the disagreements can start to 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 flow. Um, so, what's the the broad framework for approaching the standard of review coming out of Babylon? Well, the first point is a presumption. It's the presumption of reasonableness. So, the Babylon. It's even become a adjective people talk about the Babylonian <laughs> the Babylonian framework I feel like it's such it's so dumb saying that <laughs> it starts with the presumption of reasonableness and so you need to tell me the court will say why I will not apply a reasonableness review and the categories of exceptions are narrow and while not finally closed forever, the court signals, we're not looking to expand on these. So that's a nice, clean start to the framework. It's going to be reasonableness unless you can fit into one of these exceptions. Before getting into the exceptions, um, we want to think about why I have a presumption of reasonableness. 
And the court, in a, this is a pretty key move that happens in Vavilov that sort of has repercussions throughout the totality of the analysis and is you know, cause for some consternation at these various symposiums. And that is that the reason to have a presumption of reasonableness is not rooted in relative expertise of the tribunals. So we remember coming out of the QP case and, this, and then um, the Push-Panathan case, we had this pragmatic and functional approach which uh, had those four factors that you know, kind of mirrored the Baker factors in the way they would apply to push you up and down the spectrum from correctness to patent unreasonableness. And we remember saying that expertise was the sort of most important of those factors for where you would land. But you'll also remember we, we talked a bit about some of the difficulties with expertise as a concept uh, that it unpacks into some, some tricky questions. And in Vavilov, the majority says, we don't need to look to expertise to explain to you why we're going to defer to administrative decision makers. It's not a question of expertise. What it is is a question of the legislative design, the very fact that they were given this decision to make suggests that they ought to be deferred to because the legislature has entrusted them and not the courts with this decision. So they can sidestep this sort of tricky analysis of, well, we used to do roadside, or we used to do criminal drunk driving, so how can you say that this person has better expertise than us you know, to decide uh, the reasonableness of a police officer's actions in relation to uh, a roadside driving prohibition? And the court says, well, you don't have to think about that when you're thinking about whether to defer or not. Because even if that person who got the job last week and is on that tribunal and doesn't have the 20 years of, of you know, doing charter drunk driving cases that you do, Judge, even if that's the case, the legislature gave it to that person, not to you, to decide this matter. And so you need to defer to that person. So. We leave expertise as the foundation for deference, and we go to just, hey, the legislature gave it to this person, and so we're gonna presume they intended for them to decide it and the courts to not step in and um, uh, sort of claim the matter for themselves. And the court also notes that you know, there are other reasons why it makes sense to delegate beyond just this idea of expertise that had animated um, some thinking about why these institutional designs are as they are. It's not simply that you would give an administrative decision maker a decision to make because they have better expertise than the courts. There are other reasons for that legislative choice, which supports the sort of lessening of expertise as the basis for saying reasonableness. And we talked about those, and they include things like um, proximity to the stakeholders. Like these tribunals have ongoing relationships and closely know some of the regulated entities, which can be a reason to give them these decisions to make. 
um, the speed which, with, with which they can make decisions, and the flexibility and efficiency that these administrative tribunals can, can show in a way that courts can't. Um, the, the, the process that you demand and are entitled to from a court doesn't necessarily have to be given to you from a tribunal, which can lead to faster and more efficient decisions. So we have a presumption of reasonableness, kind of building our Babylon framework. Presumption of reasonableness, and it's not rooted in expertise. Expertise will come back at the end when we talk about how to tackle a reasonableness analysis, but we need not worry about it at the outset when deciding what the standard of review is going to be. All right, so rule, reasonableness, exceptions, there are two big categories. And they both relate to a situation where the court understands the legislature to have intended for a different standard of review to apply. The legislature indicates a different standard of review will apply. Including through explicitly prescribing the standard to apply. or implicitly prescribing the standard to apply. Explicitly, there are statutes that just say this is the standard to apply. And I, I'm going to show you one right here. Implicitly, we'll get to it in a second, it's the um, statutory appeal question. So you have if you're thinking, what are the exceptions? You got this one bucket. I think that my framing might have gotten a little bit off, but let me just be totally clear. If you want to think about what are the situations where the presumption of reasonableness will be rebutted, you have sort of two broad buckets. The one is the legislature's explicitly or implicitly prescribed the standard to apply through legislation or by giving a, a a statutory appeal. The other bucket that we're going to get to in a second is when the rule of law demands so. So what are the presumptions, reasonableness, exceptions? The legislature implicitly or explicitly uh, says there will be a different standard, or the rule of law demands that there will be a different standard applied. So let's unpack that first um, to bucket where the legislature has explicitly or implicitly called for a different standard. Now the explicit calling for a different standard is one of the least controversial um, parts of Avalov and when you accept this as the entirety of the Supreme Court does that legislative intent is the pole star, is the guiding light of judicial review, 
it, it's not a big stretch to say, well, the legislature says a standard is something other than uh, what we say it is, we're gonna follow that legislation. And so the important example, again, for us in BC is the Administrative Tribunals Act. And you remember again that this is legislation that applies to a tribunal if that tribunal's enabling legislation specifically invokes it. So it doesn't generally apply unless the legislature has said, and by the way, ATA sections, whatever it will be, will apply to this tribunal. One of the most common sections that the legislature will uh, make applicable to various BC um, tribunals is under part nine, accountability and judicial review, and specifically sections 58 and 59. And so what you see in these is a clear legislatively uh, defined standard of review. And the um, standard that applies depends on whether there is a privative clause in the legislation. So it's a bit of an annoying thing where the, let's say the Residential Tenancies Act, or the Workers' Compensation Act, for example, will say, you know, sections 58 and 59 of the ATA apply. But then you have to go back into the Workers' Compensation Act to see if there is a privative clause that applies. And then that tells you which of those sections apply. It would have been easier if they had just said this is going to be a section 58 problem. That's a minor thing. Don't worry about that. Uh, but what you see is in section 58, where there is a uh, privative clause, you see a finding of fact or law or an exercise of discretion must not be interfered with unless it is patently unreasonable. So this patent unreasonable standard survives Dunsmuir, survives Vavilov, even though it's not applied by the Supreme Court of Canada to its general administrative law framework, it still uh, is applied when we're dealing with cases that are decided under the ATA, the Administrative Tribunals Act. This is one of the trickiest parts of this whole standard of review analysis in British Columbia. Because in Dunsmuir, the court basically says, I don't really get the difference between reasonableness and patent unreasonableness. It's a hard line to draw. But the ATA preserves correctness, reasonableness, and patent unreasonableness as standards. And so therefore, we, and the, the court says, we have to respect that legislative intent. We have to essentially find a difference. So, when we get to the part of the lecture today talking about how to apply the reasonableness standard, I'm going to try to also tie in you know, some thoughts on how that might apply to the patent unreasonableness standard. But it's, it's a very tricky exercise to see where the exact line will be drawn. And it's an area that hasn't been fully fleshed out yet. Um, so then you see, with the Provative Clause, um, you have a questions about natural justice and fairness are based on a standard of whether the tribunal acted fairly. So it's a 
you know, the standard of review for a fairness issue is fairness, in essence. And I think we talked about this briefly during our procedural fairness ideas, but that's a standard that doesn't admit of uh, deference to an unfair process, but may give the tribunal sort of a range of different fair processes they can choose, and they don't have to necessarily take the uh, take the procedural approach that the court itself would have preferred all things equal, so long as what they do choose is fair. Um, and then you see in section 59, this is without a privative clause, um, you see correctness is to be applied for all questions except those about discretion, findings of fact, and the application of common law rules of natural justice. Uh, and then you see the a reasonableness standard being applied to a finding of fact. So this is where we get the third standard. We've seen correctness, we've seen patent unreasonableness, and we've seen reasonableness. Um, I don't want to derail our Dunsmuir discussion uh, with too much concern around the ATA, or our Babylon discussion. I do want to highlight you know, these ongoing issues, and I want to come back to them um, in the admin law and practice component of this course, because this is really important for how you tackle administrative law when you're practicing in British Columbia. Um, but what you want to take away from this little foray into the ATA is, in British Columbia, you know, we fall into that first Vavilov exception very often where you are not looking at the Vavilov framework for deciding what the standard of review is, but rather you have to go right into the ATA. Okay. Just a quick question right here. Doesn't it undermine some of the, the principle of the rule of law that you just have to go to the tribunals um, that you can use in that in fact or ADA instead of paying attention even a bit to the, to the rule of law principle, which is the same? Well, my question is, if you always, uh, if you always give the statute more important than the rule of law, even if it's the legislation's intent, so it doesn't make outweigh the rule of law principle of the English law. Well, I mean, I think you're getting at, like, there's so many conceptions of the rule of law. And is there a broader, abstract conception of the rule of law? Or does legislative intent equate to the rule of law? You know, that's a tough question. So we'll, we'll come back to the rule of law actually in some detail very soon. And, uh, but let's, let's keep that in the back of our mind, that, that tension is to sort of, does the rule of law, um, can it go beyond simply respect for the legislature? Is there a rule of law over and above um, a constitutional principle of the rule of law over and above simply what the legislature has said? Uh, which you know, is this a, bit, a very interesting question. But let's keep going. Um, so the other, so, so the, so just coming, landing back in our framework, okay, reasonableness, rebuttable, when the legislature explicitly intends, and we've seen that within the context of the ATA. But they also accept that it would be rebuttable when the legislature implicitly accepts that a uh, different level of scrutiny is warranted. 
And that occurs through the use of a statutory appeal mechanism. And so these are provisions in a piece of legislation. We went to one before in the Legal Professions Act. Maybe I'll pull it back up again really quickly. Where the legislature explicitly invites appeals from the um, decisions of an administrative tribunal to a court. And we have to note, this is legislation that doesn't say a judicial review may follow. This is legislation that says an appeal, an appeal may follow. Um, legislation that simply contemplates a judicial review doesn't oust the common law standard unless it says a different standard will apply. But when the legislature has not said judicial review, but they've said appeal, this is one of the big controversial developments in Babylon, is the answer to the question, well, then did they mean, did they mean to treat it like you would any other appeal? Or did they basically just mean it's a judicial review and we use a different word for it, but we're gonna treat it no differently than any other judicial review? The majority, in essence, says, well, the legislature said appeal, they meant appeal, and we're going to start treating them like appeals. This is a big point of departure with the minority, with the uh, Karakatsanis and Abella decision, where they say, no, we have a long line of jurisprudence which says treat a statutory appeal like a judicial review. We're not going to depart from it, and we're going to apply the same framework to a statutory appeal as we would to a judicial review. The Court of Babylon, the majority, says, no, the time has come to depart from that line of jurisprudence, you know, long and established as it may be, and the time has come to start treating statutory appeals like any other appeal and applying the ordinary appellate standards of review. So what's the basis for this? Well, what's at the top of my paper? What's the top of my submissions? Legislative intent is the idea. They're saying the legislature meant something by saying appeal. And what we take them to have meant is they said courts, you don't want to do an appeal, do an appeal. It's presented as, in essence, the flip side of a privative clause. And a privative clause, the, the, the legislature is saying, hey, courts, stay out of this. You, you don't need to get involved in this. With an appeal, they're saying, hey, you know, unhappy applicant before a tribunal, go get the courts involved. We're inviting the courts to participate here. So what does that mean in practice for the standard of review that's applied? Well, as I said last class, I think, it's the Housen and Nicolaisen is the case, standards. That's a 2002, I think, Supreme Court of Canada case, um, very widely cited. And it sets out the standards of review within appellate uh, the ordinary appellate process. Uh, in brief, it is correctness on questions of law. 
palpable and overriding error on questions of fact. And for questions of mixed fact and law, and the application of the law to the facts, it will also be palpable and overriding error unless you can, in essence, extricate a pure question of law and consider it sort of departed from the facts. And what happens here is sometimes you may not have um, you know, clean analysis saying, I'm interpreting this law to mean this, but you'll have an application of the law to the facts that reveals a you know, legal principle being applied or understood in a way. And you can just say, okay, I, I can glean from this that this is the legal principle that was applied. And if you can extricate the legal principle in that way, you can review it on the correctness standard. But if the, the law and the factual application is so intertwined, you can't really extricate the law from the facts, you're going to be in this palpable and overriding error standard. Um, it's a, uh, there's, there's a lot of jurisprudence applying Hausen and Nicolaisen. I think there's a fair amount of divergence in really what the palpable and overriding error standard means. And there isn't as good of an explanation on how to apply the palpable and overriding error standard as there is in Vavilov on how to apply the reasonableness standard that I've seen in the jurisprudence. So it can be a little bit of a tricky area. Um, the, the one thing, though, that you'll, you'll find is if you do argue um, you know, a, a statutory appeal on the basis of the palpable overriding error standard, the court has like no interest in hearing from you on how to apply the palpable and overriding error standard or the um, you know, obviously the correctness standard because they see this as, well, this is what we do day in, day out. We know how to apply these appellate standards. So it, it's, you're, there's going to be some variability in how your judge sees that task and there's some lack of clarity out there, um, but it's not going to fall to you, really, to explain it to them. You're going to just have to say, here's the problems with this decision, and I say this amounts to a palpable and overriding error. The one thing you want to try to get good at is figure out how to extricate questions of law, but that's a bit beyond the scope of where I want to get to today. Um, I guess what I want you to take away on this House on Nicolaus and standard point is that is the, how it will be approached in a statutory appeal. And um, I want you to, to take away that there's, there's a bit more to unpack within that. It's a, you know, it is a, um, a standard that's not without its own difficulties. But for the purposes of Vavilov, certainly the point of Vavilov is not to revisit and explain those standards. It's merely to indicate that those standards will apply to a statutory appeal. Um, So there's a few 
points that are made to buttress this move to apply the statutory appeal framework uh, within the, or to apply a House and Nicolaisen framework to the statutory appeal context. Um, one, I think I've hinted at, is this idea the legislature does not speak in vain. And if you're going to simply say you get the same judicial review as you would get if I hadn't given you a statutory appeal, then what was the point of even putting that provision in the act. And so this is a good tool to have in the back of your mind for any statutory interpretation. Um, if your interpretation can give effect to every part of a piece of legislation, while your, you know, the other side's interpretation essentially renders something meaningless or unnecessary, that's a big check in your favor. Um, An important thing here with the statutory appeal mechanism move is it really, you need to think of it somewhat hand in hand with the move away from expertise as animating the standard of review. And that is because even when there's a statutory appeal mechanism, there very well could be a high degree of expertise within the tribunal that is being appealed from. And so if you are to continue to have expertise be a guiding factor in the standard of review selection, you know, it does make some sense to say, well, hold on. This is a highly specialized expert tribunal that's being appealed from. Surely I must defer to them. I can't apply a correctness standard. That's a point that's picked up on by the dissent. And it's a point that comes up really clearly in the NFL case, the Bell Canada case. So we're going to come back to that point um, you know, shortly in this course. But it's, it is a sort of a problem the majority has to overcome. And how do they overcome it? Well, they say, hey, our whole framework has moved away from expertise as being a factor when we're doing the standard of review selection. But again, they say, don't worry. We're coming back to expertise when we tell you how to apply the standards. So um, it's, a, it's a sort of important point to underscore the completeness, in a sense, of the break with expertise, at least at this first stage of selecting the standard of review. Okay, I'm going to get to one of these videos in a second. Um, we're going to hear from actually UBC professor Christy Ford with a really interesting point about how this uh, statutory appeal rule will resonate in practice and who may benefit from it. But before doing so, I want to just make one more sort of important point that um, I think is easy to lose and really should be underscored. And that is a statutory appeal mechanism does not necessarily oust your ability to bring a judicial review. You may be able to do either. And if you look at the Legal Professions Act, you should be able to see why. Especially if you look at 
this part, point two. So if you are a lawyer and you get convicted of or you know, found to have committed professional misconduct, you have a right to go to the Court of Appeal, bring a statutory appeal. You're going to have House of Nicolaisen correct this on any question of law, palpable overriding error on questions of fact. And you can make any arguments you'd like about the, you know, the, the difficulties with the decision that uh, found you guilty of misconduct. But let's say you uh, have a long and storied career and you get some of those plum law society jobs of prosecuting these um, professional misconduct files and you lose. And you want to bring an appeal because you say, oh, how could I lose? I'm such a good lawyer. The, you're going to be limited to an appeal on a question of law. You can't bring a statutory appeal on a question of fact or even mixed fact of law. So does that mean that you would be barred from bringing an application for a judicial review? Let's say the facts are just insanely unreasonable in the way they were found. The court says no. You could still bring a judicial review. And when you think about it, of course you can. Because otherwise, this would be an extremely sneaky kind of backdoor absolute privative clause. Right? Like if the ability to bring an appeal on a question of law, but not on a question of fact, insulated review on any question of fact, you've just accomplished you know, this sort of radical privative clause that the courts have said we can't do because we can't have things happening that are right outside of the jurisdiction of the executive. So it's kind of a nuanced point, but I think if you get that, you're really quite far along to understanding the kind of fundamental nature of judicial review. All right, so, yeah. So, uh, say the person brings a judicial review in this case, uh, where you can bring in a period of question of law. Now, would the statutory appellate standard apply to other questions or just the question of law? Well, so the statutory standard tells you how to approach any question. So, for law, it's correctness. And then for fact or mixed fact and law, it's this palpable and overriding error. Uh, so, if you're the the person affected by a decision, you're the applicant, you know, okay, I've got an issue of law and I've got three factual issues, and I know the standard applied to each. Uh, if you're the law society, then you say, I will get correctness, but I can only raise questions of law, and if I try to raise a question of fact, the court will say, you can't do that in the statutory appeal. Okay, so let's talk, or let's, um, let's take a second and um, watch a little bit of this um, Vavilov birthday party. So it's a really impressive group of, um, of people who uh, participated in this. Uh, David Mullen wrote probably the, one of the leading texts on administrative law. Um, Paul Daly, this, that's this guy, he's, um, he's probably the most sort of visible administrative law professor going these days. I think he's at Oxford now. And um, we're going to read one of his uh, comments on Vavilov for, Monday, or for Wednesday's class. 
Uh, you see Audrey Bachter. We're going to see hear from her after the break. She actually argued uh, Vavilov on behalf of the amicus curiae the court appointed. So I'm going to talk about her role a bit after the break. Uh, you see a couple Allard professors um, who, you know, had your schedules worked out differently. You probably would have taken from them instead of me. Um, stuck with me though. Uh, and we're going to hear from, from Christy Ford and um, specifically what she is talking about is the statutory appeal issue and how she sees it resonating uh, in practice and what sort of a tribunal and what sort of litigants or you know, people appearing before a tribunal may benefit from the statutory appeal framework. So they're just coming back from a break, I think. Oh, okay. Okay, sound. Sorry, I just want to figure this out. You know what? Why don't we take our 10 minute break actually while I figure this out? And we'll come back at 11 30. And hopefully I'll get this working. Um, and it worked. So imagine. Um, so let's watch a little bit of this Babylon Symposium. And again, we're going to see uh, Christy Ford talk a bit about the statutory appeal mechanism move and how that might resonate in practice. Well, uh, hello again, everyone. Um, and, uh, we're about all set for, uh, for panel two. Um, panel two is going to feature uh, Christy Ford, Steve Barrett, uh, Stephanie Juan, GEU. Um, and as I said, in panel two, we're uh, going to uh, discuss various areas of uh, administrative decision making and the impact that Babylon has, has had or is uh, likely to have. Uh, so we discussed in the first panel how Vavilov covers a, a vast array of decision makers uh, in everything from general economic regulation to life and death matters in, in prisons and immigration. Uh, it sets out these general principles of reasonableness uh, which have to be applied in uh, specific areas of substantial, uh, substantive uh, regulation. And there's an age-old tension uh, in administrative law, or at least uh, in contemporary administrative law, there's a, a tension that goes back many decades between uh, courts setting out general principles of administrative law, such as reasonableness and procedural fairness and so on, and then them being applied in particular areas. So uh, courts articulate general principles, but they have to apply them to specific areas. And sometimes there's a mismatch between the general principles articulated and their application in specific context and one of the, the challenges for people studying administrative law and practicing administrative law is taking those general principles and applying them to specific areas of substantive regulation. Uh, and so that leads to, to some questions uh, about the implications of Vavilov and whether they're going to be the same across the board, uh, whether uh, Vavilovian reasonableness review is going to be robust or restrained in different areas and to what extent. Um, and over the, the medium to longer term, is Babylon going to have to be recalibrated 
in some way or any way in order to account for differences between different areas of uh, regulation uh, or decision making. Um, uh, or, well, recalibrated is one way to put the, put the point of it. There may also be a fear that uh, Babylon might be manipulated to achieve uh, results which uh, judges feel are just in uh, the particular context of, uh, of a case. And so um, I'm really uh, interested to, uh, to find out uh, from these experts in different substantive areas uh, of law uh, what the, uh, the implications of, of Babylon are, are going to be. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, uh, Professor Christy Ford. Um, Christy is a professor of law at the, the Allard uh, School of Law in uh, at UBC. Um, uh, thank you for, uh, for getting up early uh, to be with us, uh, Christy. And, uh, you're an expert in, uh, in securities regulation. Uh, and I thought I'd uh, start by asking you whether uh, the uh, concurring judges uh, uh, assertion that uh, deference is, uh, is dead or, or, or dying um, is, uh, reflects the, the reality uh, of how Babylon is going to be applied and influence uh, uh, securities regulation uh, to your area of expertise. Well, thank you, uh, Paul. Uh, I'm coming to everyone uh, from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh uh, people here in Vancouver. Uh, and it's a pleasure uh, to be part of this very fun event uh, with such a great group of administrative law colleagues. So I guess, uh, I guess the short answer to uh, your question, Paul, would be that yes, I do think that there is a real possibility that what we're going to see, uh, at least around the economic tribunals, is uh, less deference uh, than, uh, than, we, uh, than we've seen so far. So it's worth remembering that it was the economic tribunals that got us started down the road to emphasizing expertise uh, in the first place. And so it was PESM in 1994 and Southam in 1997 which established the idea of uh, reasonableness simpliciter specifically uh, in an area where a tribunal had a statutory right of appeal and no primitive clause, and yet uh, was recognized as having a lot of expertise. That's why we had reasonableness simpliciter in the first place. And with the Babylonian pushback against Pezim and Zedim, that's why it is being pushed back against. Um, and so I think distinguishing characteristics in this area would be First of all, that a lot of administrative uh, tribunals around economic regulation do have statutory rights of appeal. And so the new Hudson and Nicolaisen, uh, or, or the renewed Hudson uh, and Nicolaisen standard, uh, uh, will apply to a lot of economic tribunals. The second point that I think is relevant here is that most of the time when we're looking at economic regulation, the party that is challenging government action or regulatory action is likely to be a well-funded corporate litigant with uh, access to creative uh, and uh, well-remunerated counsel. And, uh, and so what we will see, I think, is pushback by a very particular kind of uh, litigant against government action. And so I think the impact of that law in this area will be that judicial review will become more common and or statutory appeals will become more common, and both are, are options. Uh, corporate actors will succeed more often in pushing back against regulatory decisions, 
And I think the knock-on effect then will be that regulators themselves may become chastened when they think about the massive costs of defending any decision uh, uh, against these parties in borderline cases or cases where they're required to exercise a level of discretion. So, um, uh, in the last panel, Mary Liston talked about the idea that we're in a uh, an era of neoliberalism, and I guess I want to uh, expand on that a little bit. So, uh, uh, in one of the earlier versions of our administrative law uh, in Canada, during context textbook, um, Audrey Macklin suggested, and I think she was right, that in the era after Densmere, but before Babylon, we uh, uh, it was really remarkable the degree to which uh, economic tribunals were um, experiencing deference from courts relative to other areas. So courts would not defer to human rights tribunals or um, you know, uh, many other immigration tribunals and the like, but they would defer uh, to economic tribunals. And, uh, and what she suggested, in fact, was that the entire standard of review project was a bit of a shell game and that you could predict whether a tribunal was going to be deferred to or not more based on what their subject matter was than uh, based on uh, what the official standard of review uh, would have been. And, uh, and I think uh, this is a, an important consideration when we think about how economic tribunals are understood. I mean, economic expertise is not more esoteric, it's not more marvelous, it's not more complex than expertise in other areas. And uh, I think what we saw was this privileging of ex economic expertise um, and the sort of deference to these financial masters in the universe in the years, um, at, well, both before Dunsmere in 2008 and also after. Um, now, I, I do think that economic expertise uh, in, on the part of tribunals like the competition tribunals is in fact very important. It's just that they're not all that special that way. So, so we had a background of sort of a neoliberal preference for economic forms of expertise, which we were seeing uh, in cases like Peasant and Southern. Now, after Vavilov, that's gone. But I don't think it's because Vavilov is engaging in some post-neoliberal critique of the economic order. I think, uh, on the contrary, the decision is very much pitched at a different register, and it's about the battle for authority between courts and tribunals. And so Babilov now asserts that the statutory right of appeal, the presence of the statutory right of appeal, is really determinative evidence of a legislative intent not to defer to that tribunal's expertise. And so where there's a statutory appeal right, you treat the appeal and the standard of review on judicial review will also be like the like an appeal from a lower court on the House of Indicalism standard. Um, and uh, I hear the uh, minority opinions critique that this is really a profoundly traditional, they use the word textualist, approach uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, interpretation and to uh, really the absence of deference. So if I can just make a couple sort of high points um, about, about the world of economic tribunals. Sorry, you can't make those high points. <laughs> um, no, I think that's really interesting. Uh, what I like about that clip so much is, for one, she's obviously brilliant, uh, and it's great to hear from her whenever you can. Uh, but for two, uh, I just the way that she goes from this rather, like, who cares? Okay, we have a different framework for statutory appeals. We're now going to do a correctness standard. Uh, fine. 
to saying, well, how is that going to resonate in practice? Where are the statutory appeal mechanisms? Who's now going to benefit from being able to more easily challenge these decisions in court? And how might that even resonate within how the tribunals themselves approach their work? Because it is an expensive proposition to uh, defend these decisions. And will that result in tribunals um, maybe shying away from more confrontational things with uh, well-resourced litigants? So that, that's kind of the main thing I wanted to have you take away from this was the way that this choice could resonate in practice, sort of a to-be-watched uh, thing. And, and again, underscores just how quickly we can get from you know, standard, standard review analysis to broad philosophical conceptions. Is Vavilov neoliberal or post-neoliberal? Like it's, it really is incredible how, how quickly we can get, um, get deep within the Vavilov. So um, I hope that gives better context for this debate, which we are going to pick up a bit more next class when we get into the dissent around the wisdom of the statutory appeal move. Um, but I want to transition now into, the, into a discussion of the rule of law and correctness uh, points of Vavilov. The, suggestion that we have sort of these two mechanisms into the correctness review. The first being legislative intent, the explicit or implicit legislative intent. And the second being where the rule of law demands it. And um, I'm going to talk a bit about it, then I want to show two different presentations from the Supreme Court hearing that both tackle the rule of law issues in dramatically different ways with dramatically different litigation styles, and I would say to probably dramatically different levels of success. So the rule of law sometimes requires a correctness review. There's three instances the courts identified where the rule of law does indeed require the standard of review to be correctness. The first being constitutional questions. The second being general questions of law of central importance to the legal system. And the third being questions of competing lines between tribunals. That sounds familiar to you, it should. I think it was right about here on the board with a few tweaks when we talked about Dunsmere. So I'm gonna go through each of these uh, briefly. Constitutional questions, what the court is talking about here is constitutional questions that are about the interpretation and application of the Constitution to legislation or to um, defining Aboriginal or treaty rights. They're not talking about the application of executive discretion to individual litigants and their charter rights. That is the charter values question. We're going to come back to that when we get into the charter and administrative law. But what they're talking about is, you know, you may be called upon as a tribunal who has the first line of interpreting their own jurisdiction 
to resolve a division of powers question. Is this issue that you say is within my jurisdiction even something I'm constitutionally able to decide? Um, one thing about Vavilov is it's changed the framework, so you have to kind of, you can go back and think about facts that were decided pre-Vavilov and wonder how they might be decided differently post-Vavilov. One example that comes to mind for me is we're talking about that Air Canada case and jurisdiction of the Workers' Compensation Board to uh, an accident that happens outside of British Columbia, arguably, sort of the territorial limits of a provincial tribunal. You can see how that raises a constitutional division of powers concern. So when the board is deciding that constitutional division of powers issue, Vavilov would suggest a correctness standard. Um, there's other times where interpreting your own legislation will run into the limits of the, the uh, enacting legislature, the section 9192 division of powers. And when those questions arise, the court has said they require correctness review. The scope, the Aboriginal treaty rights, another thing we will come back to in greater detail, but this again has this distinction between, on the one hand, understanding how the Constitution applies at a high level versus looking at how sort of constitutional rights were protected in practice. So with Aboriginal and treaty rights, what gets a correctness review is the existence and scope of those rights, but the application of those rights in a particular context can get a deferential review. We'll come back to this, but where it resonates most strongly is in the duty to consult. So the courts will defer to the executive's discharge of the duty to consult, but will not defer to the executive's interpretation of the scope of an Aboriginal or treaty right. So you want to think it's constitutional questions, but the court is concerned about the kind of leak of this category into a sort of bridgehead to getting more and more matters reviewed on a correctness basis. So they say, you know, it's constitutional questions, but it's those high-level constitutional questions. It's not the individual application of constitutional principles in any given case, because that would be a very easy way to get into a correctness review otherwise. Um, the general questions of law of central importance to the legal system as a whole is a category we saw in Dunsmuir. You'll note that it's a tiny bit less of a mouthful this time around. You remember last time it was general questions of law of central importance to the legal system as a whole that are outside of the expertise of the tribunal. Now, in line with this broad movement away from expertise as being the defining uh, or a defining part of a standard review analysis, the court just cuts off that last part. You don't have to care anymore whether or not the question issue is within the expertise of the tribunal or not, simply whether it's a central question of law or a question of law of central importance to the legal system as a whole. 
Um, the examples I gave last time, though, are still the examples that resonate, and I think I drew those examples from Babylon indeed. And it's the um, it's things like the scope of solicitor-client privilege, the application of res judicata and abusive process, the scope of parliamentary privilege, these types of questions that are not about the specific tribunal, its subject matter, its application of that subject matter to the facts before it, but rather are about questions that are more broad, general, and applied to the legal system as a whole. Um, the final category is the jurisdictional boundaries. As I sent an email out, we're going to get the case on Friday about that from the Supreme Court of Canada. So broadly, the idea is when you have a, an issue of two tribunals with apparently overlapping jurisdiction, how do you resolve the question of which jurisdiction should take, or which tribunal should take jurisdiction? Kind of makes sense. You need a consistent answer on that because you can't have something falling through the cracks where neither tribunal will take jurisdiction or where both tribunals say, this is my exclusive turf, you have to come here. Um, I'm gonna step or uh, not get into the details of that exception because we're going to learn so much more about it on Friday, and we'll talk about that on Wednesday. So you have these three rule of law-based uh, exceptions to the reasonableness presumption, constitution, the uh, central questions, and the competing uh, lines of jurisdiction. The court says, look, we're not purporting to say this is definitely the end of the list, that there could never be another one recognized. But they do say, don't expect us to recognize another one uh, unless you can make a really compelling case that's on the same footing as these three. And the kind of implication being, and we thought pretty hard about it, and we don't see any other ones. So they don't close the door, but they, they, don't, they, they don't leave the door very open. Um, they reject the suggestion that where there's a persistent discord within a tribunal as to how to interpret a particular provision, like the tribunal keeps giving inconsistent answers on the same question, that that justifies a correctness review. But they do tackle that issue within the how to apply your reasonableness review that we'll get to. Next you have the sort of fraught area of true questions of jurisdiction. And this is an area where the court has moved away from the idea that there is a separate category of quote unquote true jurisdictional questions. They reject that proposition. They say it's not workable in practice. This had been, you know, this is an idea that I think it's very helpful that we took the time to go through the evolution of the standard of review. Because when we go right back to those early cases around the privative clause, remember it was that idea that, hey, you're asking the wrong question altogether. 
And you'll see a, a very interesting exchange from Justice Rowe and um, Audrey Bachter, the, the excellent lawyer, uh, on that point shortly. But in essence, the idea had been that if the tribunal is just, we're trying to decide whether you can even address this question at all. It's a true jurisdictional question, whereas when we're dealing with did you apply the law in a, in a defensible way, consistent with the legislature's expectations and intentions, um, that's somehow jurisdictional, but not a true jurisdictional question. And the court said, look, it just has been impossible to apply this in practice. They say, all judicial review is in some way jurisdictional. They accept that proposition, that what they're always trying to do is to understand if the executive stay within the scope of its jurisdiction. So they say, being as that is the case, where to draw a line between a ordinary jurisdictional question and a true jurisdictional question just isn't helpful in practice and isn't helpful as a factor in deciding the standard of review. So this category that was, you know, uh, gave much difficulty is just rejected in Babylon. To simplify the approach. If that feels sort of acceptable to you and you get the, the, the point that why a true jurisdictional question um, and just applying a standard of review or procedural fairness standard, you know, why those sort of are all kind of part and parcel of the same thing, you're like light years ahead of where I was. Um, following admin law. I didn't understand that at all. I was like, well, one's about jurisdiction and one's about reasonableness of the decision. Like, they're, they're very different. Um, but if you accept that, no, fundamentally, you know, the route for even reviewing reasonableness of the decision is jurisdictional. The route for reviewing the fairness is jurisdictional. Then, you know, you, you get the framework and, and you're, in, you're in very good shape. Um, I was... So not on board with that, but eventually I came around. So I, what I want to show now is um, sort of two submissions which really, and this is, we're getting into the applying reasonableness next, so I want to close off the sort of more substantive uh, rule of law and how that resonates in the standard of review analysis by showing you two different submissions, and then I hope to take a few minutes at the end to sort of discuss the differences in both the substantive approach and the presentation, and what you, know, what you see in terms of the, the litigator's approaches. Um, now, so what you had at Babilov, uh, the, at the SEC hearing, was a three-day process where both the NFL case, the Bell Canada, and the Babylon case were argued at the same time. People didn't, people intervened to participate in both of those cases. Um, and the court not only heard from the individual lawyers arguing the merits of the Bell Canada and the, uh, the Babylon cases, but also appointed two amicus curiae to make 
presentations focused only on the framework, irrespective of the, um, of the facts of the individual cases. A very strange process that I don't know of a precedent for. But the point of it, I think, was to say, I don't want this to be uh, this framework analysis to be wholly done by people with a outcome in mind, with an axe to grind, as it were. Um, you know, for Mr. Vavilov, you're going to argue for deference because you, or sorry, for uh, for less deference because the original decision maker, you know, said you don't get citizenship. Um, and so the, the precedent you're going to get from that lawyer is going to be aimed at a particular substantive goal. Interveners uh, all come from a particular perspective. And I want somebody who's really there just to try to give me the full picture on um, this framework and how we might make it more workable in practice. So the court appoints these two amicus curiae. Uh, Daniel uh, Jutras, uh, he's the rector of the University of Montreal, which is like the highest level position within that university but it comes from a legal background, a law professor at McGill, I believe, for quite a while. And Audrey Bachter, who's a, um, just a superstar lawyer, um, she's probably about a 10-year call at this point, and so if in 10 years from now the Supreme Court of Canada is appointing you to give it guidance, you know, you've done decently well so far in your career. Um, and so they provided a factum that basically is the Vavilov decision. When you read it, you're like, they, this is all that. It's really a remarkable piece of work. And um, we're gonna watch a little bit of Audrey Bachter's presentation in a second. But before that, I want to show a little flavor of the hearing. Um, it was raucous. There was this, the way it goes is you have like day one, people are arguing um, before the applicants for judicial review, so the sort of positional, I'm Babalov's lawyer, I'm Bell's lawyer. Day two, you have the responding positions. Day three, you have this just parade of interveners, one after another, five minutes each, all morning, giving all these different views. It's really fun to watch the intervener portions of these arguments because it's just, you know, little tastes. Uh, and then it concluded with the amicus coming in saying, here's our Here's our position. Um, I, I had a look through various uh, interveners. There are a lot of interesting ones. Um, th this one I'm going to show you is a guy, Michael Goldenberg. He's a lawyer at McCarthy Tetro. He's a brilliant dude, no question about it, and a forceful personality. And um, well, I, I won't comment on it. I want to show you this and then show you Audrey Macklin's presentation. Not Audrey Macklin, I'm sorry. She actually, Audrey Macklin wrote the chapter we read last class, and she did in fact make a presentation as an intervener, and I might show that next class because there's something very interesting in it. Uh, don't have time today, I don't think. Uh, so I'll show you Michael, and then I'll show you Audrey Bachter, and, um, and then I think we'll have a chance to have a bit of a discussion. So we'll start with, whoops, thought I had a queued up. We'll start with, uh, so you see the three days here. Go to the third day, this is a fun one. We'll start with uh, Michael Rosenberg and a 
particular conception of the rule of law. Chief Justice, Justices, and may it please the court, I'm Adam Goldenberg for Ed. And Justice Brown, I say Sorry, rule Adam. of law with the utmost pride. I have one submission, and I offer it with affection and respect. The single most helpful thing that this court can do to improve the common law of judicial review is to stop trying to make it simpler to apply. Please. Factors didn't work. Neither did categories. And despite what British Columbia has told you today, neither has a presumption whose, whose application has only seemed to become more complex each time this court has tried to simplify it. Instead, we submit that the analysis can be reduced to two propositions. First, deference is only appropriate, only ever appropriate, where the legislature intends it. And second, the legislature's intent can only ever be found in the text, context, and purpose of legislation. My first proposition, courts cannot defer on questions of law without legislative direction to do so. When a legislature has given the Crown the power to find facts or to make policy or to exercise discretion, we can assume from the fact of delegation that the legislature intended courts to defer to those determinations and to uphold them unless they are unreasonable. But that assumption does not hold where the issue is what the legislature meant to do. What is the scope of the discretion, the objectives of the policy, the limits of the delegated authority? We respect the legislature's choice to delegate policymaking or to confer discretion because those choices are indicators of legislative intent. And this was not so before QP. To Justice Bella's point, to Mr. Van Nias, questions of policy and discretion delegated to the executive could be and have been described as questions of law. But they're a different kind of question of law than the question of what the legislature intended to confer, what powers it intended to give to the executive within the scope of a particular enabling act. And that difference, we say, is meaningful. Because contrary to what you will hear shortly from the Amici, we cannot assume that wherever the legislature delegates anything, it also and necessarily delegates the power to decide what has been delegated. That power rests with the court. Because courts tell us what choices our legislatures have made, what they have delegated and what they have not. This is because the judicial interpretation of statutes allows the executive to know what it is empowered to do. It also allows citizens to hold legislators accountable. Bell Express View stands for that proposition. Administrative decision makers cannot do this for themselves for the same reason that they cannot resolve their own internal inconsistencies. They are not bound by stare decisis, as this court has recognized. And to Justice Abella's question to Mr. Plotkin, this court has said that even an independent tribunal created by the legislature and administered under the auspices of the executive is not tantamount to the court, whatever independence it has. That case for that is Oceanport. And it's in paragraph 21, where even those tribunals are created to affect policy decisions. Leaving Oceanport aside, it's not a case that's widely cited in this court. I wanted to ask you whether you see any inconsistency between the government delegating the authority over a particular statute to a tribunal, 
but saying that tribunal doesn't have the authority to decide what that statute means. So if I understand your question, is there a distinction between conferring certain legal determinations to a tribunal and withholding certain determinations for judicial resolution? What I, I, I'm just trying to figure out what that boundary is. So the boundary is, and it's hard to define, and it will be defined in cases over time as to whether what has been delegated is the scope of a policy discretion or the ability to decide what unfair work labor practices means. Those are policy-laden determinations that this court, since QP, has properly recognized are delegated by the creation of the independent tribunal. But deciding where the limits of that delegation are has to remain with the court. And you can call that whatever you want, true, false, large, small questions. They are legal questions that are not necessarily delegated by the legislature in the creation of an administrative decision. Or if they are delegated because the decision maker may have the right to interpret the boundaries of his or her power, but not conclusively. Yes, and furthermore, that has to be the result of legislative intent. The legislature has to intend for the decision maker to have that power in order for the decision maker to have that power. And that delegation, that empowerment, cannot simply be assumed. Because unless the legislature makes that choice, unless it actually intends deference on questions of law, on that type of question of law, there cannot be any basis for deference on that kind of question. I would ask you to conclude, please. So to conclude, no matter what you say in these appeals, lawyers and judges will continue to argue about the standard of review. You cannot put an end to that. Please don't try. You can, however, end the squabbling about what Justice Binney and Dunsmuir called law office metaphysics. That is about the framework itself. Tell us to use the ordinary tools of statutory interpretation to argue about whether the legislature intended deference. Let us argue at the level of principle about the constitutional limits on deference, instead of tussling about whether a particular judicially invented category exists or not. And let stare decisis, which I say is Dunsmuir's most significant, yet most overlooked contribution, sort these things out over time. Subject to any questions, those are my statements. Thank you. Audrey Macklin. Thank you. All right, so that's one approach to litigating. And let's watch the other approach, and then we'll sort of discuss the two. So now we're going to see, I think, a very interesting exchange with Audrey Bachter. Go forward. Sure. I think you just answered my question. The court should get involved. It's a matter. My colleague has covered why we think Canadian administrative law has evolved to the point of recognizing a principle of deference as a core component of respect for the democratic creation of self-contained, autonomous, administrative decision-making schemes. Sure. Thank you. I'm going to discuss now how this institutional model fits within the Canadian constitutional structure. I agree entirely with the proposition that was put to you that legislative choices and institutional design must comply with our constitutional design, and that there are indeed two pillars underlying judicial review, legislative intent and the rule of law. The question for us at this point is, therefore, when does the rule of law, which is, of course, the other twin pillar underlying judicial review, require courts to definitively decide what the law means? In other words, what are the constitutional imperatives? Because I do believe that there are some. 
So I'm going to begin with the importance of articulating a robust theory of the rule of law and then go on to discuss its implications for true questions of jurisdiction and the categories that we argue, and in one case I argue, require courts to have the final say. I think one of the problems with Dunsmuir is that while it articulated the rule of law as the twin foundational principle underlying judicial review along with legislative intent, it didn't really fully account for what the rule of law means. The majority notes that the rule of law is affirmed by ensuring courts have the final say on the jurisdictional limits of the tribunal's authority, and this definition fails to account for the full scope of judicial review that has evolved post-QP and doesn't account for all the facets of the rule of law as a constitutional principle. Now, I'm very mindful that when we use the term rule of law, we have to be careful. It's one of those concepts that can mean all things to all people, and it can't be so broad as to serve as a justification for basically any type of intervention on questions of law. But it is nonetheless broader than what was presented in Dunsmuir, and if we want the next framework of judicial review to last longer than 10 years, we have to come to a common understanding of what the rule of law means. So we chose to ground the definition in this court's jurisprudence and we think that's the must be fair to the authors of Dunsmuir. What was said is that the uh, standard of review will be a contextual decision. However, for rule of law purposes, four categories are clear and will always give rise to correctness. He didn't say those are the only circumstances where rule of law will give rise to correctness. Yes, absolutely, and, and I think one of the issues there is that those, those the categories enunciated in Dunsmuir weren't, weren't specifically connected to, uh, to individualized rule of law principles, and that's what we propose to do in our approach. So we look at the court's jurisprudence and find three components of the rule of law. First, that there must be a system of laws which relates to the principle of intelligibility. Second, that all state action must be authorized by law, which that delegated authority must find its source in law, which is legality reconceived, as my colleague presented. And third, that there must be equality before the law in the sense that the law applies to everyone, which is the value of consistency. In addition, to enforce these principles, there must be a basic level of access to courts. And so these combined with Section 96 of the Constitution Act means there is a special role for the judiciary in upholding the rule of law that can't be ousted by statute implication or institutional design. But this means that we must have judicial review, i.e. why a primitive clause can never oust judicial review entirely on any question, even a question of fact, but only in a few instances does it compel a particular standard of review. So the question is when. First, and perhaps somewhat counterintuitively, I think the, the, the first question is when, doesn't it? And that's our submission on the category of true questions of jurisdiction. And it, I, I know you've asked this question to my colleague already, and, and he, he, he began with the answer, and, and I'll complete those submissions. In our view, the concept of legality can be controlled through meaningful reasonableness review. And I think it's telling that in 10 years, not a single judge of this court has been able to provide a lasting and comprehensive definition of what a true question of jurisdiction, which is some concept of jurisdiction other than the, 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 the daily fare of statutory interpretation that administrative decision makers do, that would constitutionally mandate a standard of correctness. And the fact that we went through the history of the jurisprudence, not for the sake of providing a summary, but because it shows that the struggle to delineate the concept of jurisdiction has eluded the jurisprudence for decades. Just prior to Dunsmuir, we had come to accept and push Panthen that the term was just a shorthand for questions on which the legislature intended that a standard of correctness apply after the quote standard of review, of review analysis. And as a conceptual matter, I think it's time to come to terms with the fact that there is no constitutional subset of true questions of jurisdiction because all questions are about the limits of authority in one way or another. 
my colleague Prasipik presented you an example. He said, well, I can think of an example. What about interpreting the phrase ordinary course of trade? That's got nothing to do with jurisdiction. But if the decision maker interprets trade to mean banking, then the decision maker is being, will be exercising jurisdiction over a, sub matter, a subject matter not conferred to it. So the distinction just breaks down. Well, I'm going to give you an example from Monty Python. Bellow <laughs> <laughs> goes into the office and says, I want a cat license. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the guy behind the wicket says, no, this is the dog licensing board, not the cat licensing board. And the guy holds up a, a, a dog license with the word dog crossed out, and cat written in, in crayon. The true question of jurisdiction is whether that officer can grant a cat license. The question of, of whether the license is properly issued, which is not the jurisdictional question, and which I would show deference in, is whether you properly issue the license by crossing out dog and writing in cat. Well, I mean, the, the question is, what's the meaning of dog? It's like if the it's that's the question, and it's it's no different than what's the meaning of costs in the well, answers to that two reasonable responses. Yes, in the case <laughs> it's a dog, and often now it's reasonable to think it's a cat. Well, again, that depends, right? Is is a dog is what is a dog a, a multi-factor test that can lead to different answers, or is there only one answer? I understood the submissions to be not that there is no such thing as a true question of jurisdiction, but that it's not a useful uh, paradigm. In, in administrative, in judicial review. That's, a, that's absolutely right. It's not, that, it's not that jurisdiction as a concept doesn't exist. It's that there is no subset within that category of jurisdictional questions that for constitutional purposes requires a standard of review of correctness. The reality is we have been reviewing the vast majority of jurisdictional questions on a standard of reasonableness since QP, and there is no constitutional imperative to carve out a subset of those questions call them true questions of jurisdiction and apply correctness now. So, I mean, so do, you, do you have no difficulty then with the idea that an administrative delegate's decision as to the bounds of its own power is subject to deference by courts? I think that's what we've been doing since QP. I, the cases on costs to me are the best examples of that. This court has consistently held that whether an a statutory delegate has the authority to award costs is not a true question of jurisdiction. What else are we asking? We're, they're both interpreting the scope of the word costs and determining whether they have the authority to issue a particular remedy. Is that so that's remedial authority. That's remedial authority as opposed to the scope of jurisdiction, which is the, the timber cutting board, whatever we referenced to before, can it deal with aviation? That's the scope of jurisdiction. But, but that's, again, it's, it's, a, it's a question about interpreting the scope of of timber cutting, and if if the delegate does, it interprets timber cutting to mean aviation, well, it's an unreasonable interpretation of the definition of a term that is within the core of its mandate to interpret. So I just all right. Um, so yeah, I hope that that's enjoyable. Um, you don't think like imagine you get up in the morning in the hotel in Ottawa. And you're super nervous because you're going to present from the Supreme Court of Canada that date, and you're like, "Gotta get ready for that definition of dog question." Like, <laughs> it's, I mean, and the skill that she took that question and landed it is just like remarkable. Um, and so, what you see there was just the, the justice who um, asked her the dog question. That's Justice Rowe. 
Um, and he's previously, along with Justice Brown, who is the guy you just saw at the end, uh, they're ones who have previously identified and, and said it's meaningful that there is a true question of jurisdiction in a dissent. And I think you see the moment there where she wins them over. They both are in the majority in the, in the Babylon reasons saying it doesn't matter anymore. We're abandoning that concept. So I think it's frankly really remarkable advocacy um, by her. Is there any, like I kind of want to open it up. I don't want to do a lot of talking and a lot of listening in this class, but is there any, um, Anybody want to make any comments or any impressions on those uh, the two advocates we saw, difference in styles or effectiveness? Yeah. One thing I really appreciate about her argument in particular, she lays it all out right at the beginning, especially since she's under such a time crunch. Yeah. I think that's really important because then even if she doesn't get through all her steps, you still understand where she was going with it. You understand her framework. Absolutely. Where the other guy, I don't know if he got through everything, and we might have totally missed half his argument, and we wouldn't even know. Great point, yeah. Any other thoughts? I, mean, I think you see a remarkable difference in style. I think it's, it's sort of funny that the first question she gets asked is, you know, could you please turn your, or speak louder? I don't think Adam Goldenberg was ever asked <laughs> to speak louder. Um, but you see, uh, you know, I think both styles can be effective. Um, his sort of very uh, blustery and sort of uh, you know, very forceful style absolutely can work. Um, her style, which is, I think, much more precise and organized in some ways, I think works better, <laughs> to, to be frank. Um, I think there's a reason that, that she won the day and basically everything that she says in her factum is accepted. And, you know, Goldenberg's position is, is not even dealt with within the context of the, of the reasons. Um, that said, I think there's good points on, on all sides. And you see the way the rule of law, you know, is claimed by different litigants for different ends, tying back to the theme right at the beginning of our course. You know, Goldenberg's client is called Advocates for the Rule of Law. And he comes up here saying, stop trying to make this simple. Let us just argue about legislative intent and just decide every case. The question that is asked is, did the legislature intend for deference on this question? And we will bring all our bear to it and we will uh, decide that on a case-by-case -case basis while respecting the stare decisis. And I think his basic proposition is, Eventually, we'll have an answer to everything, just build it up slowly. Um, her framework is very much the opposite. Let's, let's have rules, let's have clean rules that apply for everyone, and let's explain how that resonates within a rule of law framework. And you know, that second approach is, is absolutely what, what wins out. Um, I like showing these videos. I'm going to show a few more next class. I think it, it helps sort of, you get a visual sense as to what happens in these cases. Uh, I didn't get nearly as far as I thought I would, um, but that's fine because we do have two more classes and if necessary, I'll even push this into you know, a, a fifth class on 
standard of review because I think it is that important. Um, what we did get through today was the selection of the standard of review framework. And so this is really important for you know, this course. You're gonna to wanna to be able to understand this framework for your exam. Um, and you, know, you want to have a, a really deep think on why this presumption of reasonableness has been adopted and you want to think about where these exceptions will apply, where there may be some, some opening up for some further correctness review, and also um, you know, why it might be unlikely for that sort of thing to happen. So let's leave it there and we'll tackle next class starting with the how to apply reasonableness. And I hope to also get into the dissents. Um, the, the other two cases, you know, have a glance through. Um, we probably will talk more about them on Wednesday. I'm gonna take off, or perhaps even make optional, well, take off one of the articles I was gonna have you read for next Wednesday, but I may in fact make them both optional and instead talk about the, um, the Horex, the competing lines of jurisdiction case on Wednesday. So I'll let you know as soon as I can about that. Um, also on Friday, I do want to let you know there's going to be a, a special guest. It's a professional development day at school, and I know my son's going to come here, so we're going to have a little guy um, probably paying attention for like two minutes, and then I'm going to let him bring his Nintendo. So, yeah. Um, so we'll see you then, and, uh, and thanks so much. Have a great day. lecture for like last class on canvas i'm sorry uh, did you upload the lecture of our last class on canvas i think i did did i uh, not i don't know last okay. night i checked that because i started okay, reading that sorry um, I, I don't know like I I, yeah that maybe i didn't um thank you for that i'll make okay. sure i did yeah uh, or maybe it it's mine no it shouldn't be it should be uh, okay. there if it's for you okay. sorry about that i'll do that oh, no worries no worries thank you yeah statutory appeal. Yeah. Say you can only bring an appeal when there is a question of law. Now you you can also bring a judicial review, right? Now say now this right tells us that uh, a statutory appeal standard would be applied on a question of law. Now if there is a judicial review with other questions, say a mixed question or a question of fact, what's the standard applied to these questions? Yeah, so that's a really good question and For the other, for the, for the, within the judicial review, it's going to be the, um, the, the judicial review standards. Where I think you, there's a problem you're driving at is, am I doing, like what if I have a question of law and I have a question of fact, yeah. do I have to do both? Or do I do a one process that's both a judicial review and, a, um, and an appeal? And I think the answer is you'd have to do both. You'd have to do a judicial review on the questions of fact, and you'd, have to, you'd want to do a statutory appeal on the questions of law, which is a really problematic and unwieldy thing. 
and especially when you look at like the Legal Professions Act, the statutory appeal goes to the Court of Appeal, mm -hmm. not to the trial court, yeah. and you can't do a judicial review directly in the Court of Appeal. Yeah. So you can't even have them heard together. You're going to have one judicial review, and you're going to have one statutory appeal. In practice, what you would do, almost certainly, is you start both. You start your statutory appeal, you mm -hmm. start judicial review, you stay your judicial review, you don't advance it, you just start it so that you get your timeline met. Mm -hmm. You see if you get your answer from the Court of Appeal, from the, from, from the statutory appeal that you like. If you succeed in that, you probably drop your judicial review. Yeah. If you lose on that, then you say, okay, I'm going to get my judicial review now. So have we simplified the process? Not no, at all. No. Yeah, not at all. But but you want to think if it's a judicial review, it's going to be the judicial review standards of review. Even if it's on a question of law. Even if it's on a question For of law. For which there is a presence of statutory appeal. That's a really good question. So, I, I yeah, think so could Vavilov, yeah, Vavilov touched upon it in paragraph 45. Okay. Yeah, let's, so, yeah let's see. but it's, it's just that I, I think the court said if you apply the same standard to other questions, the the statutory appeal provision would become redundant and yeah. that's that's all that they say yeah that's right so the existence of a statutory appeal within a judicial review would that impact the standard of review on other questions in a, a judicial question. review i'm in a that's i didn't understand your question before but it's an excellent yeah. question and I, yeah i, 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 I made a it. note i made a note on paragraph 45 so that's yeah. why let me just see if i can find the paragraph um, and and then I want to think that through a bit because that to me that's a very very important point that I hadn't really ever to remind you before Oops. no I went too far oh no it's going way too far <laughs> got impatient and now I'm paying the price stop oh no maybe I have it open elsewhere I have it Yeah, I don't think it answers the question about yeah. what happens. It's a content. It sort of hints at it, but doesn't answer it. Yeah. And it's such a tough question because, like, this, let's say the statute, the Legal Professions Act, says statutory appeal can go to the Court of Appeal. So if I start a judicial review, and I'm in the Supreme Court, am I really entitled to correctness on law in that court? Yes. Yeah, because the legislature didn't really say I am. So, yeah. Oh, that's a like brilliant question. Um, I want to talk to uh, a few people and see if anyone knows the answer to that because I don't know what's mm -hmm. happened there, and that's a really obvious problem. Yeah, like it's a great question. Yeah, but because there's a choice, right? You can either bring a bring an appeal or you can bring a statute yeah. or a judicial review. Yes. But bringing a judicial review does that take away your right to get a correctness review on the question, which is. Yeah. explicitly there yeah. in the appellate provision. Yeah, because I think I think absolutely it doesn't. You could do both. But the question is, if you just do just a review, are you really going to... 
What the court probably would say is we can't tackle the legal question in this judicial review as being very narrow on the thing that's excluded from the statutory appeal. Um, but again, the idea you're going to drive towards two proceedings is really contrary to what the court likes. Yeah. So it's a great question. I, I wish I had a better answer for you, but like I, I get it now, and I really want to figure this out. Okay. I'm going to ask some people. Right. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Yeah. Hey, I just had a quick question. Yeah. If you flip the two litigants.